0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. But all the way down to these little corals that we're going to talk about today. Because corals are animals, they're not plants, because plants make their own food. What can they teach us? As a buffer, right? So
1: it's hurricanes coming in or a big storm. Healthy coral reefs can absorb 97% of the wave's energy.
0: Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: Deep breaths. <gasps> We're gonna need some deep breaths for this one. Right? Put your
1: seatbelt on, folks. This is gonna be a wild ride. Uh, yeah, prepare no, to good. have your mind blown and fall mm-hmm. in love today with corals.
0: Okay, how's coral an animal? Like, come on it's it's a it's a hard. Substance that I scratch my knees on, or you don't actually yes, you don't even want to touch them, but when you accidentally do sometimes, or when I was surfing or something and and getting scraped across the coral bottom, how is that an animal? Like I was blown away you know, years ago when I found out it's an animal.
1: Right. Well, we're gonna talk all about that today. But then I'm going to go as far to say is there might be some alien features of this sea creature. Because the anatomy, the physiology, the behavior, oh boy, and the reproduction, wait till we get to reproduction, Mm -hmm. is just, it's really mind-blowing and super fascinating. And then Chris, learning all this week about how important corals are is hopefully really going to capture your attention and your heartstrings and just give you a new outlook on corals that are in shallow waters all across the world. Obviously, there's some more famous reefs that we're going to talk about today uh, from the Great Barrier Reef, and today we'll focus a lot on the reefs in Florida too, but Chris knows that I've been dying to do corals, but I've also been a a little scared or intimidated because- this is an upfront disclaimer. Uh, Chris and I are not invertebrate experts (laughs) by any stretch of uh, of your imagination. In fact, if this is your first time tuning in, you might actually want to pause this episode and go back to an episode of like giraffes or rhinos or, or another mega vertebrate where Chris and I really know what we're talking about with that, right? Like that's what we were experts in. So Uh, yeah. Then, then you'll be like, "Oh, these guys are cool. They know what they're talking about." Uh, But if you're just (laughs) (laughs) no, but uh, but as always, as as we promised, as part of this podcast, uh, Chris and I did oodles and oodles amounts of research, and I was lucky Mm. enough this week to talk to a coral scientist expert, uh, Mm -hmm. Dan. And so we'll be featuring that interview. He is from the Coral Restoration Foundation, CRF. Uh, It's just a brilliant interview that'll be released in a couple days. And hopefully after you listen to this episode on corals, you'll get more excited to learn about what scientists and conservationists are doing to save corals. Because Chris, they Mm -hmm. need our attention big time. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you're a surfer, you're a water lover, anybody Mm -hmm. that loves the ocean or just loves nature in general. I mean, corals are like the rainforests of the sea. And we'll we'll, we'll talk Mm -hmm. a lot about that. But experts project that 90% of the world's reefs, coral reefs, we'll talk about that, that they're going to be gone by 2050.
0: I know, I know.
1: That is like right around the corner. And as we... Turn our attention a little bit to Florida uh, to help support the interview that's going to be released on Thursday. We'll talk a lot about the staghorn and elkhorn corals that are in that are threatened, and in fact, researchers estimate that like 98 to 99 percent of staghorn and elkhorn corals have been wiped out since the mid 1900s. So, and that's what the interview focuses on how Coral Restoration Foundation is trying to bring them back and really successful at it so far. And I don't know about you, Chris, but I definitely spent some time watching amazing coral videos of their colors and their sizes Mm -hmm. and their shapes, textures. Oh my gosh, they're just fascinating.
0: Yeah, I was. I actually was just, uh, before we recorded, was was watching one on, on cold water coral, which we'll talk a little bit about that, you know, there are some that range way outside the tropics, which is, you know, an enigma for this, these animals. But I, you know, because we have been talking about doing this for two years. Like literally, we've been talking about doing corals for like two years. And we kept saying, we just want to get an expert on. And we finally <laughs> got one, reached out that we felt brave enough uh, to talk about invertebrates. Because you know, I, it was like, okay, how is this an animal? And, you know, insects are animals;
1: they're mm-hmm. they're
0: classified as animals. So, so are corals. I mean, if you look at just the definition of an animal, which is a living organism that feeds on organic matter, typically having specialized sense organs and nervous system, and able to respond rapidly to stimuli. So, it's not just something complex like a blue whale. Or an elephant, you know, the largest mam- land and sea mammals, but all the way down to these little corals that we're going to talk about today. Because corals are animals, they're not plants, because plants make their own food, right, through photosynthesis or other, other ways. And they have little tiny tentacles that capture their food. And we're going to talk about that, how they do it. So they are classified as an animal. So, we're going to get more into it. And the physiology is, is a lot of fun and, and how they do this and how they make these, these reefs and things that they do. And, Angie, this week I'm going to dedicate this episode to Sonia. She's 13 years old. She reached out to us and said, I really would love it if you could talk about corals because I'd love to learn more about it. She's like, I know you probably get a lot of requests. So, it would mean so much to me if you decided to, to do them. So Sonia, yes, we we definitely had it planned. And this one's for you.
1: And thank you for reaching out. And we appreciate the emails and the and the words of encouragement. So thank you.
0: And before we get rolling, just really quick, you know, just a thank you to Dragonudi. I love that name. I love it. <laughs> Came on yeah. Patreon. And then Wen June for joining us this week. That's that's amazing you did. You're helping support the podcast and then also conservation. Uh, we just sent out some money, I believe, to the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. So here in a week or two, we'll be placing the one for July. So so thank you so much. You know, a cup of nice coffee a month supports us, free education, and then also conservation. So thank you.
1: Yeah, that's so awesome, Chris. And I have to give a quick shout out to madgen ninety four. And I really appreciate the comment because in there they mention that our podcast keeps them going and keeps them motivated uh, as they pursue, uh, as he or she pursues a wildlife career. And I just thought it was so reciprocal to Madja 94 thank you, you keep us going. So comments like that, uh, sometimes when I'm tired at nighttime and doing a lot of research and I'm like, I should just go to bed. I'll check the iTunes comments and then I'll see like, oh, no, okay, I got to keep going for this one listener that appreciates us, and which I know yeah. a lot of people do. So thank you so much for that really personal comment and a glowing review because the more everyone does that, writes a few sentences, gives us a five-star review, the more people can see us and the more exposure we have on iTunes and the more we can help educate people for free. So thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And I mean, with corals, I mean, there's so many cool facts you're going to learn today. Like I, I was wondering about their nervous system. So I looked that up. You know, can you see coral reefs from space? I mean, there's just some Oh, cool, Chris, cool well, stuff See, coming. that's why you yeah. and I are
1: partners. That's why we're buddies yeah. and scientists and friends, yeah. because every time I got a question answered about corals, because I had a bazillion of them, it led to another question. And that's how science works, right? You answer one question leads to actually, yeah, it may answer it, it may not, but it leads to even more questions. And so I have to say, hands down, Chris, this is by far my biggest presentation of slides yet that I'll be looking at throughout this podcast. I think I have over 40, which I know we're not going to get through. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save some for the after show. Uh, I know we're not going to get through all of them. I and so my overall goal is for one person to say, you know what, maybe I will study coral ecology. That sounds really mm-hmm. cool because yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, Chris, but as I was going through this and then watching all the divers do this coral restoration stuff to help mm-hmm. save these threatened animals, I was really moved. I'm like, I should have done coral ecology. It's too late now probably to go back. And now I have friends like my buddy, Dan, that I did the interview with who he was so sweet Uh he told me he's like Angie. If you need anything, like just send me an email. I'll answer any questions any hour of the night. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Yep, yep. I had Dan uh, from uh, Coral Restoration Foundation on standby as my expert. Uh, so it definitely takes a village. But yeah, hopefully somebody will be inspired today. And uh, Dan's story about how he got into corals was really uplifting. And um, we just need we need more people out there fighting for corals. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, you know, and you're talking about, you know, getting the next generation excited or these generations of scientists upcoming. I mean, Daniela, who I interviewed a few weeks ago for forest elephants, that was her master's work was, was, if I remember right, we talked about how she was doing coral work. And then she ended up getting her PhD in elephants. And now she's in the States. But as soon as she can, she's going back to Central Africa to be studying these elephants out in the middle of the Congo. I mean, so, you know, if so I know many we have conservation a lot of,
1: heroes out there. Yeah, yeah,
0: so. we do. We have a ton of them. And we have a lot of, of students that listen uh, throughout the world that are studying this and, you know, listen to these interviews and, and really listen to how they got started. And that should help give you an idea of some of the paths that you can take because, you know, we need you out there. We need you out there. And then we'll come, you know, interview you for the podcast in 10 That's years. Right. We're still doing mm-hmm. this. <laughs> All right. Angie, how do you describe corals? <laughs> it's like, where do you go? We're going to talk about the, the physiology of the, the, the polyps, the tiny, tiny or- organisms. But, you know, I looked at the staghorn and elkhorn corals because you were those are the ones you're really interested in. But how do you describe these things, like the coral reefs?
1: Well, Well, I think the first thing to identify is that corals are these marine invertebrates. And... They typically, and the ones we'll be focusing on today, live in colonies of hundreds or more of identical polyps. And so when we're talking today about adult corals, we're talking about the individual polyp. Or if you're watching a video on YouTube and you see it maybe catching prey or the tentacles moving, that's going to be an individual polyp. But together, where there's multiples of them, living in colonies they can build these reefs and so when you just go to google image or if you go to our show notes and you look at a picture of let's say staghorn it actually looks like not horns but like antlers from a deer as far as many branches stem out from a central trunk and they angle upwards uh, and staghorns are beautiful. They are anywhere from like an orange, brown, yellow in color. And like I said, if you look at them from a distance, you see this thing that looks like an antler. But if you zoom in closely, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of individual coral polyps on that colony. And so like staghorn, elkhorn is another threatened species off the coast of Florida. In fact, some say it should be endangered. But its branches look, they're thicker and fatter or wider, um, almost they, like, they look, like an elk.
0: Yeah, or paddle, like, uh, you know, we talked about the Oh, paddles. the moose paddle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, from our, yeah, our moose yeah, episode. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah there so, you go. Okay
1: and so they're, they're they're similar uh but different in shape and size, and once again, they're very sturdy and thick branches, mm-hmm. and they're brown or orange yellowish brown, beautiful colors and when you zoom in and look closely, you can see the individual polyps, but there are so many beautiful colors of corals, textures, sizes, shapes that it's that it's almost hard to describe you. We'll put pictures on our show notes. I mean, I think it's one of these things where we could probably do a whole podcast for a year just dedicated to different species of corals. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who's done any scuba diving or uh, snorkeling in reefs can understand that it just looks like a beautiful tropical forest down there. There's blues, there's greens, there's purples, yellows, oranges, browns. So corals with colors and shapes and all different sizes are healthy corals. And Chris, like you touched on in the beginning of the podcast, even though they have these colors and they are these invertebrate kind of soft tissue polyps on the outside, the bottom layers of the coral are hard and you do not want to scrape your leg against it when you're uh, snorkeling or, or surfing or anything like that.
0: No, you don't. I mean, it, it's because, you know, it, and I remember that one of the biggest things was you didn't want to scrape because you didn't want to harm it, you know, because mm-hmm. anytime you, we touch it or you can accidentally break it, it, it you kill it and you right. kill the organism. And as endangered as they are, you know, we need to really protect and, and preserve our corals. I mean, I after doing all this research all week, Angie... I'm dying to go diving now. I'm like dying to to Chris, go somewhere too. I, I, I feel like
1: such a buffoon. Where uh, it, it's been a while since I've been snorkeling, and I'm like, golly, I I didn't know different species of corals. I'm sure if I would have gotten a book or done some research ahead of time, mm. I could have been more familiar with all the different species and perhaps identified some. Now I know a sea fan. I definitely love seeing sea yes. fans off the coast of off the Florida Keys, but. Overall, yeah, or in Hawaii, I'm like I don't remember any specific species there, but it was I think I was just naive, and that's what this mm-hmm, podcast mm-hmm. is all about: changing perspectives, yeah. right, and uh, growing and evolving. And now that'll never happen again. Now, like I always say, I want to be a bird nerd. Now I want to be a coral nerd. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like a, yeah, yeah, I yeah, want to. Yeah. I want to yeah. be able to identify different species. Uh, and I told Dan mm-hmm. too. I'm like, and Dan, I, and I told Dan from my uh, CRF interview. That I'm like I got to get down there and come see what you guys do up close and personal and in the water, and so I, I, I per per usual I, I invited myself, <laughs> but I think he graciously <laughs> agreed.
0: <laughs> well, Chris Fisher still said you can go on the boat. You got to go on that boat with Oser. I know. Sure. I,
1: I absolutely. That's that's the yeah. uh, this although this podcast is just a passion project, there are little side benefits of uh, people we meet along the way yeah. for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, before you, 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 we want to get a little bit more into the corals, the soft corals, the hard corals, we can talk about that here in a second. But you real quick want to talk about range. I mean, these things where coral organisms are found, we alluded to it in the tropics, really between the Tropic of Capricorn the Tropic of Cancer, you know, through the Indo Pacific, Western uh, Atlantic Ocean, there in the Caribbean, uh, around South America that's typically where these coral reefs are found reef building corals in general love shallow
1: water typically less than 60 meters or 200 feet and because they require sunlight we'll talk more about that here in a little bit when we get to nutrition and some symbiotic relationships that they have but they can be found, What I, which of course blew my mind, like most of the things of, of this podcast this week, is that some corals do live in much, much deeper water, uh, mm-hmm. they, and they can survive up to 3,300 meters or 10,800 mm-hmm. feet. And Chris, they can be found as far north as uh, Northwest Scotland uh, mm-hmm. and off the coast of Washington State. So yeah, and we, we're not going to really touch on... Uh, the deep water corals, mm. that's kind of a different pod for a different day. They have some gnarly physiology as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in general, they're all over the subtropical equatorial range.
0: Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, it's just, uh, they're just amazing and just beautiful. Now, Angie, last week we talked about sea snakes and I did mention the Great Barrier Reef. Which is the largest coral reef in the world? It, it it can be seen from space, which is really cool. I've got yeah. some images from NASA.
1: Well, it's yeah. the only animal, quote unquote, that can be seen from space, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, Pretty yeah. Cool. True, very true. Uh, it's off Queensland, Australia, in the Coral Sea. It's one hundred thirty-four thousand square miles, or close to three hundred fifty thousand square kilometers. Make made up of like. 2000, over 2,900 individual reefs, 90 islands, tons of biodiversity. I mean, oh, insane I amount of biodiversity.
1: I, I, somebody described it, a scientist described it as the Manhattan of marine ecosystems. And although I spent a lot of time living in Chicago, I'm a huge fan of visiting Manhattan. I've got a good buddy, Sammy, that lives there. I get to go uh, every other year or so. And Mm -hmm. I just, that really put a visual in my mind about how big and how diverse the Great Barrier Reef is.
0: Yeah. No, it's insane that 1,500 species of fish, 17 species of sea snake, which we covered last week, six species of sea turtle, salty crocs, over 200 species of birds i mean nemo lives there it <laughs> is huge it's a huge i've dove it i cannot wait to go back to australia and dive it again
1: yeah now you're going to be a coral nerd and study them ahead of time so you can identify all the species you see and come report back to us
0: i will i will i will also <laughs> get an underwater camera and i'll be like oh my god look at this thing oh yeah. my god look at this thing you know
1: well and. Yeah. And some other large reefs that are super famous are the Belize Barrier Reef off the coast of Belize in Central America, the Palancar Reef, the, the Raja Ampat, I might be saying that wrong, uh, Grand Central Station, and the Chimneys, and then several others.
0: All right. So we need, you know, need to kind of lay out a little bit on, on just corals themselves. I think that will help before we jump into some of our normal show, you know, we talk about evolution, things like that. And then that will help you even understand better why care, you know, get a better description of what a coral is. You know, like Angie already said, these, these animals live in colonies, hundreds of thousands sometimes, you know, uh, tiny coral creatures called polyps. And the polyps are generally no thicker than a nickel. I mean, they're tiny, tiny, tiny little things. And they attach to rock or dead skeletons of, of other corals. Now, the two types that we're kind of, fo- well, there's two types, but today I think Angie and I are just mostly focused on the stony hard corals, which are called, skle- oh my goodness, did he, did Dan help you out with this one?
1: Oh, no, their- he's not good at names either. Sorry, Dan, not to throw you under the bus, but we, <laughs> we joked about it. he could do he could name some of the algae we'll talk about and things like that we we had a lot of fun going back and forth at how yeah it's uh no i think it's you maybe don't maybe just skip it put in the show notes i don't know (laughs) i'm not gonna try that's
0: okay sclerotinians sclerotinians okay hard corals so stony hard corals and these polyps you know they they get together, they grow and die and repeat the cycle over and over and over. And they lay the foundation for the coral reefs, you know, which we're gonna talk about a little bit later, the calcium carbonate, the limestone, things like that. And, you know, many of these colonies can live for a very, very, very long time, which you're going to find out. Now, there are things called soft corals, which are also, you know, sea fingers, sea whips, They're soft, they're bendable, they kind of look like trees or plants in the ocean. They don't have like a stony skeleton, but have like a a wood-like core is how they describe it. And so they're non-reef building. They're non-reef building.
1: And Dan did teach me too that uh, one of the main identifiers between hard versus soft is soft coral polyps always have eight tentacles. While hard coral polyps have multiples of six tentacles. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's cool. Well, that's a good one. Now talking about hard and soft corals, Angie. I mean, they're both critical. They're both critical to the the ecosystem. I think this is the gist of the podcast this week. I mean, you want to listen to the physiology later on, especially if you you know, have any if you have any desire of wanting to go in the ocean and snorkel and dive and see these beautiful reefs, but I honestly believe this is the most important point this week about why I care about corals. I mean, these things are incredible. And, you know, one of the websites I was looking, some of the the research I was looking up was from Scripps Institute in La Jolla, back home, you know, in California, my old hometown. I grew up in Del Mar, you know, less than five minutes from there. And they they stated, healthy coral reefs are among the most biologically diverse and economically valuable ecosystems on earth, mm-hmm. providing valuable and vital ecosystem services. Corals are so critical. They provide food for millions. They protect coastlines from storms, habitat, nursery grounds. What, what are some of the other things? I know this is like your jam. This is like these – I mean, there were so <laughs> many things that coral reefs do.
1: Yeah. It's,
0: it's like hard to, to even limit ourselves on how much we talk about it.
1: Yes, Chris. Coral reefs are described as rainforests of the sea. And we all know from many of our podcasts how important the rainforests are, right? The tropical rainforests. Mm-hmm. Well, corals house so much diversity. In fact, just to throw some numbers out there, because Chris and I are numbers people, it can include up to 4,000 species of fish, 800 species of hard corals, and hundreds of other species that often act as like, and often the corals act as like nurseries. So a Mm -hmm. a lot of fish and other sea creatures will be born in coral reefs and then migrate later out, migrate later on to the deeper oceans. And so... Coral reefs are actually not that big. I saw, I was reading statistics about how the whole, all the coral reefs in the world are maybe about the size of Texas, which is a state in the US, uh, Mm -hmm. but they house 25% of the world's marine species. So Mm -hmm. think about that. Think about that for a second. And so that's from a diversity point of view. But when it's not about the money, it's about the money, as you mentioned. And so, and so some cool statistics to back that up is about a half a billion people rely on coral reef fisheries worldwide to get 95% of their protein. And this is often in some of the m- more underdeveloped countries right, that are poor and need this fish protein. And so they're getting it from the coral reef systems or species of fish that are at least born in the coral reefs and then head out to the deep waters. So if you think about that, taking away that ninety-five s- percent of their protein for a half a billion with a B people—that's mm. just—I mean that's starvation, right? Like wh- yeah, I, we don't yeah. have—we don't have a plan B. Those countries do not that are not. Those countries that are developing and undernourished do not have a plan B. But for some of the more privileged and developed countries, like me here in the United States, coral reefs have been valued by WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and the Smithsonian Institute as worth at least a trillion, one trillion. That's with a T. Wow. And, wow. and annually, coral reefs generate 300 to 400 billion in food, tourism, fisheries, medicine. So if you are uh, someone that's into economics or kind of understanding how money flows, the coral reefs are critical for that. And Krista, throw some stats on there about how important corals are to protecting your beach community, right? So Mm -hmm. homes that are on businesses that are along coastlines where there are coral reefs. They act as a buffer, right? So it's hurricanes coming in or a big storm. Healthy coral reefs can absorb 97% of the wave's energy. So they can help prevent loss of life and property damage to coastline areas that are already being impacted by rising waters and or climate change. And then lastly, Chris, just the science dork in me because, of course, you and I love biotechnology and anything to do with medicine and physiology. Researchers and scientists are discovering that coral reefs have valuable medicines that have been used for treatments of cancer, arthritis, HIV, And the list is just growing and growing. The more we learn about some of their unique physiological properties and mechanisms, and hopefully you and I will be able to touch on that a little bit as we get into their unique physiology where people will be like, wow, these guys are crazy. Aliens are amazing. So humans can tap into that uh, perhaps to save lives, and they already are. And so if we lose coral reefs, we definitely lose unknown valuable medicines.
0: No, it is. I mean, it, it, it's, and I kind of dove down. I mean, I read a lot of that stuff, too, about, you know, how critical they were. And it's just like, we can go for days, you know, days, how important they are. And so what I wanted to, to touch upon, which I started last week, was a little bit about, you know, the reef systems being destroyed. And then we talked about, you know, how 60% of the Great Barrier Reef has been bleached, 30% of it is probably dead. I read up, Upwards of now 50% of the Great Barrier Reef may be dead, which is very concerning. Looking at some statistics provided by the United Nations, the percent of coral reefs destroyed so far in the United States, and this was by 2018, in the Pacific Ocean, the good news was only 7% of coral reefs have been destroyed. The Caribbean, it gets a little more concerning at 22%. The Middle East, 35%. Southeast and East Asia, so here's the, you know, going around from, I think, Thailand down to the Great Barrier Reef, 34% of the reefs have been destroyed. And then when you get into the Indian Ocean, so you're talking, you know, around Africa, uh, you know, up there near India, things like that, uh, 59% of the coral reefs have been destroyed. Yikes. So yeah, it's 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 not good. It's just not good. Now, what's one of the main reasons? It's not, you know, this month we're talking about plastics, things like that, that do affect ecosystems, you know, it does affect corals in, in some indirect way or direct way. The big concern is climate change and the corals, the coral systems are directly influenced by climate change. And this is one of the first species we're seeing this happen. Now, what happens is the warm ocean water prevents corals from laying down the calcium carbonate skeleton. So it inhibits the growth of a health, healthy reef ecosystem. Now, other things like excessive fishing, pollution, which we talked about last week with all of the deforestation going on in Queensland. You know, you're getting a lot of runoff of soil, topsoil, erosion in those rivers that are pumped out into the ocean that affects the the coral systems there too. But climate change is definitely a big one. Now, what is coral bleaching again? When it warms up, we're going to talk about the algae here in a little bit, but this symbiotic relationship between coral and algae is very important. When the waters get too warm, or like Angie even said earlier, too cold, they become stressed. And then when the polyps are stressed, the algae leaves. So then you have a bleached coral because the algae is what gives it this vibrant color. The the different colors we see is because of the algae. So when the algae leaves, you have this white coral, calcium carbonate, you know, skeleton. That's like what we see in skeletons, it's white. And it's bleached, and then it's vulnerable to destruction. You know, they can starve other things, and then it dies. And now you have a dead coral or a dead reef system. Which, Angie, this is uh, okay. This is the whole thing. We keep talking about taking pieces out of the food web, and how there's this whole ecosystem breakdown. Well, we're seeing it in these coral systems. When coral dies, the ecosystem dies. I've seen video after video of bleached corals. And there are, I think we said it even last week, there's barely any fish around. It is not a, th- a a thriving, vibrant community of fish and sea anemones and crabs and everything. Eels, snakes. It's all gone. It's all gone. And we're seeing it across the world. We're definitely seeing it across the world. So, I mean, in 2005... Uh, the Caribbean lost half its coral systems because it's of crazy. extreme warm waters.
1: Yeah.
0: Ugh. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it, it, it's critical. It's why we care. Like Angie said, the importance of it and then what's happening out there and why climate change is really the critical piece with the coral, you know, to, to, to help our corals. We need to combat climate change. You know, here we go. Here we go. So Anyways, okay, off my soapbox. Let's talk evolution. <laughs> no, that's an important <laughs> soapbox,
1: and but there is some positive news out there, and hopefully, you'll check out the interview with the Coral Restoration Foundation and see what conservation heroes are doing across the world to help rebuild and restore coral reefs, and and also learn a lot more about them. Right? So there, there is some positive news out there, and it's Chris and I love to do this podcast because we're always able to find scientists and biologists and ecologists and just overall conservation heroes that are fighting the good hard fight. And, uh, so, so yeah, it's not all doom and gloom, but overall the numbers are, the numbers are pretty staggering for, uh, how corals are doing as of late.
0: Yeah. It's concerning. Now, Angie, corals are one of the most ancient organisms we've covered, but there's one more that we just were like, it's an invertebrate. Oh, it's lives forever or could live forever oh jellyfish yeah 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 so jellyfish actually are probably some of the more primitive that we've covered like 700 million years ago where corals uh, the first evidence of a hard coral dates back about 540 million years ago that's Can still you imagine nuts, those though. ancient reefs yeah <laughs> yeah nuts. yeah yeah i mean and 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 I, as i'll talk about they're, they're not reef building but just they they found some evidence in Scotland and China uh, but they were small organisms that lived in in the shallow sea. So when you go way back, there weren't a lot of reef development until the end of the Triassic period, which was like 200 million years ago. So then you had these periods of huge reef development, less reef, huge reef, less reef, uh, to to where you get uh, to the, the corals today. What I thought, what I thought was very interesting too, is I was like, okay. We've had some mass extinctions over those 500 million years. How have these 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 corals survived? Now, we know there's deep corals. You talked about it earlier down up to 10,000 feet deep. So maybe that's how they did. I know that's how like the ancient sharks survived. Uh, it was at the third mass extinction, I think it's when like 97% of all life died out. Like we're lucky we're here. The earth should have been gone, you know, as far as uh, wildlife or or animals or anything. Um so Over 150 million years, the the reefs came and went with the mass extinctions. And then today's corals really flourished again, kind of like the snakes last week, after the fifth mass extinction when the dinosaurs died out. Then the coral reef systems that we know today uh, really erupted. Now, the Miocene 10, 20 million years ago, there was, that's basically when the species today started to evolve or 5 million years ago is when like they all emerged. So the coral reef systems that we have today, a lot of them are like millions of years old as far as when they emerged as a species, as an animal, you know, not something recent development. So the taxonomy is, 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 was a little interesting because we didn't really specific, you know, find a species like we normally do, or even just break it down to a, a genre, So, you know, the kingdom's animalia, because then you have the animals, the plants, the fungus, the protists, da-da-da-da-da. Now, the phylum is nadaria, which, you know, has over 11,000 aquatic animals. You're talking the corals, sea anemones, the jellyfish we just talked about. So, that's the phylum. We're chordata, because we have the spinal cord. So, that's us. We're chordata, where these are nadaria. The class is Anthosia, and for us that would be ma- Mammalia mm-hmm. for humans. The Orders is where kind of I, I kind of stopped because <laughs> this is where it was. So the order for soft corals is Alcanacea, and there's over 800 species under that order. And then for the true stony corals is the Sl- Slartina, Tinea, and there's over 3,000 species.
1: Wow. So we really could do a podcast just on corals for many years.
0: <laughs> oh, for the rest of our lives and not even cover them all. Like, no way. No way. So there's numerous families within that. And, and honestly, it, it's trying to look into this. It's a huge mess. It's a huge mess on the species, the, the, the taxonomy. Now that genetics is in play. It's the classification of corals is very, very, very complex. It's out of our league
1: and that's okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. That is okay with me. Now, here's some of the things. Okay. So I'm like, okay, how old can a coral be? Mm. Now we do know some reefs like the Great Barrier Reef is 20,000 years old. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that individual organism is 20,000 years old. It's just the reef Mm -hmm. that it's built or is part of is old. Now, there's debate here. And one of them is actually Texas A&M now. He's he's one of my actually named after my son, Dr. Rourke. Cute. Is, is nice. Now, he he believes that his he's done some carbon dating and he has said he's estimated corals could live up to 4,000 years old, making it one of the oldest living organisms on earth, the individual polyp itself. What? Other uh, Others said, No, you're wrong. It's probably around 70 years old. They can live up to be 70. Okay. Now, it has to do with the way he carbon dated it, right? And to carbon date these organisms. The reason Dr. Rourke's methods are being questioned is because the corals, the the carbon that they're picking up and eating, Mm -hmm. can be from the ocean floor. Right. And so they're they're saying that carbon they're picking up is actually very old and that they're ingesting and implementing their, their body. So it's actually older than the coral itself, that there's no way that a coral can live to 4,000 years. Yeah.
1: Golly, Chris, I just love science and these great debates. Uh, but that is fascinating. Well, Chris, I read the Elkhorn, the colony itself, right, can persist mm-hmm. for centuries, hundreds of years. But the individual polyp itself usually only lives for two to three years. Okay. Okay. For that, but it's obviously that's one out of the many thousands of species, right? So different species do different things. But yeah, so, but I think there's some differences between colony age and then individual polyp or organism age.
0: Right, right, right. how long they live. I mean, the immortal jellyfish, we go back to that episode- it can live forever because it just regenerates. It it gets injured. It drops back down into this polyp stage and then goes back to the Medusa stage and just keeps that cycle going. Which, interestingly, my my slide next, or, is talking about the polyp itself. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about coral formation. You know, Angie's going to be able to dork out that in a second. But basically just describing this, what it kind of looks like. I mean, I almost said it's like a jellyfish. The soft body sandwiched between two layers of skin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then it's got the tentacles, which you said the six or the eight, mm-hmm. depending on hard versus soft, right? The soft have eight and then the, uh, right. Okay. And so those tentacles uh, that reach out and they get food and feed it into its mouth, which is an oral disc or a, a gastro cavity or what I call the stomach. Now, the one thing I was interested in is these invertebrates because, you know, we're we're, we're mammalian, we've studied physiology, all the different systems, the central nervous system, the the endocrine system, reproductive system, digestive system, things like that. I'm just always wondering about, you know, classification as an animal. What is their nervous system like? And corals, very similar to jellyfish, do not have a centralized nervous system. And they use neurons to help them sense the environment. And so they have what's called like a nerve cell net. Okay, that gives so, a feedback, so not like a right? brain.
1: They don't have a, a
0: no, yeah, no, not like an octopus that has eight brains or nine <laughs> brains, whatever it is. Three hearts. Each tentacle has its own little brain, but they 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 just have a neural net that helps them sense their environment, mm-hmm. and and that's about it. So Angie, I really asked you to cover how they grow the reef system or lay down the the hard calcium carbonate limestone. Because I remembered you dorked out so much on antlers, <laughs> I was like, "This is your jam. This but is this those is." Those are
1: antlers on a mammal, so yes, yes, uh, yes. But yes, Chris, I appreciated the email a couple of days ago that was like, "Please cover how they grow. I'm scared." <laughs>
0: Basically, <laughs> true. <it's laughs> I, I, I want to be, I'm true, absolutely. But
1: I, I, uh, I, I, I uh, had some cliff notes from my buddy Dan from CRF because this was something that I. Uh, Aside from our interview, it's really not an interview, but after the interview, I was like, okay, I need your help. I, how, yeah, how do corals grow? I just, I can't quite wrap my, I've been reading about it, but I can't quite wrap my brain around it. And so before we get into how the colonies grow and build into and reef systems, and this is for reef building coral, just really quick, their life cycle which we'll talk about more when we get to reproduction. But their life cycle starts out once fertilization occurs, uh, then they, the little embryos that grow become these free floating planulas, planulars, planulae, depending on who you ask. And they're just these cute little blubs of tissue, teeny tiny, and they'll float in currents anywhere from two days to two months, depending on the species. And so on a colony, there's several individual polyps. and But that still begs the question of how, how do they grow? How does a reef get bigger? When you're looking at species like staghorn coral, it's a really fast-growing coral. It can grow up to eight inches in branch length per year. So that's super speedy. Whereas a lot of the corals, only grow at a rate of about 0.4 inches per year. Okay, so it depends on the species as far as how tall they grow and how they build their colonies. But the physiology behind how they do this once they become an adult polyp or animal is awesome. So what happens is the individual polyp, the individual animal, is capable of drawing in dissolved calcium from the seawater. And then of course, with chemical reactions and metabolism within their body, or their body sac, they turn that calcium into a hard mineral calcium carbonate structure, also known as limestone or CaCO3, okay? So calcium carbonate. And after this metabolic process, the individual polyp will then secrete this calcium carbonate towards the bottom of the structure that they're attached to form the framework of the reef. And so over time, each individual polyp releases this calcium carbonate, this hard skeleton, some describe it as an exoskeleton. They deposit it down and then They grow up from that. And then Chris, over time, tens of hundreds of thousands of years, these coral fragments die, whether their life cycle is two to three years, or as you mentioned, maybe, what'd you say, 4,000 Yeah, right? (laughs) 4,000, yeah, yeah. The sand, the debris, shells of other animals that live on the reef basically accumulates and decays to gradually form this base of calcium carbonate structure. So it's just incredible. I think I sent you a video too to kind of, it was like an anime, of course, uh, to dork out. And we can maybe put it in the show notes. They describe it better than me. But it's just super incredible because what I was talking to Dan about, I'm like, I don't understand. These guys are invertebrates. How do they have a skeleton? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the skeleton at their base does give them some structure, right? I mean, they're only, as you mentioned, typically about as thick as a nickel, uh, depending on the species, the individual polyps. Uh, but they're, what they're doing is they're basically creating this, this skeletal base and then rising up from that and the different Mm -hmm. species do that at a different rate. Uh, and so, but it takes a lot of time to build these reefs and that's where maybe similar to the rainforest analogy. If you clear cut a rainforest, it's not like the rainforest is going to be back next year, right? These Mm -hmm. hardwoods Mm -hmm. take a long time to grow. Even more arguably, when they're bleached or damaged, they're just they're not going to rebound overnight uh, because of this slow, overall slow growth in the bedrock. It just takes a long time. But if they're healthy, oh my gosh, as you mentioned with the Great Barrier Reef System and other coral reefs, I mean, they can grow to be huge and weigh several tons of, basically generation after generation uh, on top of one another.
0: No, yeah. I mean, I read somewhere they grow, you know, multiple centimeters per year. So I know you said, and then watching that, the, the video you shared, I believe they said it's almost like tree rings mm-hmm. because they can tell a lot about the health of the ocean when they look at the, the coral layers and tells, you know, if it was a good year, bad year, too hot, too cold, things like that. Um, tells a lot about the ecosystem. So, you know, really, really amazing stuff. Now I know, in defense, the the both stony or the the hard and soft corals they can retract with muscle fibers, so they have some muscle that that retracts them in because things that might feed on them like you know snails or fish, barnacles,
1: starfish. Did you read about starfish? I know,
0: oh starfish, yeah. Oh
1: man, (laughs) oh man, Chris. Once again, some of these sea creatures are way out of my comfort zone. But I was reading that starfish eats hard coral, but that they have an extrudable stomach that basically wraps Mm -hmm. around the coral and ingests it. And in in one (laughs) night, a starfish can eat its body diameter in coral.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. So
1: that's definitely a a predator. Does does that
0: mean we have to do starfishes someday?
1: I think so. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Golly golly gee. Yeah, definitely out of our comfort zone. But how? I'm like, I mean, as the nutritionist in me, I'm like, an extrudable yeah. stomach? What? Yeah, I, need know, I need to know. I need to know more about that. Uh, but once again, a healthy coral system, with a cycle of life, can handle starfish nibbling here and there on mm-hmm. the individual coral polyps. What they can't handle is the ocean rising x amount of degrees in the past couple hundred years.
0: Yeah. And growing, yeah. No, it's been bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've covered it in the past, and we'll we'll definitely keep our eyes on it in the future. You know, and and seeing you know how those temperatures are rising in the ocean. So, Angie, I want to talk about the the symbiosis with this algae because it's very critical, it plays a big part in nutrition that keeps corals alive, it does other things for them, right? So they're 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 very important. We we alluded to it a little bit with the bleaching. Mm-hmm. You know what happens when they when they bleach. The algae, I, okay, so zooxanthellae, zan, how do you say oh, it, right? it's a
1: rough one. It's a rough one. In fact, most places just say algae, but we want to do science here. And so I, I looked up how to pronounce it. The typical species of algae that has a symbiotic relationship with most of the hard corals that we're talking about today is called zooxanthellae. Zooxanthellae. Okay. okay. And it's okay. in the class of. Dinoflagellates, So a type of a, a special class of algae, which that is way out of our comfort zone. We don't, we don't do algae. So <laughs> <laughs> no, no,
0: no, no, we no, can just no, either no, say, yeah,
1: we can just say coral mm-hmm. algae from now, or if we want to be fancy, you can say zooxanthellae.
0: And it's like, it, you know, and it being an algae is a plant. So it's plant like it, it uses the waste products, the metabolic waste products from the coral mm-hmm. for its own needs. Correct. And in turn, you know, that's their food. And then in turn, they produce oxygen and they produce organic products of photosynthesis that corals need to grow, Mm -hmm. thrive, and build up these reefs. So that's just the basics on it. But I know reading some on nutrition, that without the algae, corals could starve because they, they live in parts of the ocean where there aren't a ton of krill and microorganisms
1: well, Chris, and what blew me away about this mutualistic symbiotic relationship between hard corals and algae was it's not the first time we've seen this, okay? Uh, I always, in my uh, animal behavior and ecology class, I always talk about the sloth in their symbiotic- I just of that. Yeah, and their yes, uh, yes. mutualistic relationship with algae because they literally have green algae growing on the, their hair. And that's once again a different talk for a different day. I think we we probably covered it in sloths. If you go back to that episode,
0: well, it was Patreon, yeah. So we might have to release that to the public. Oh, Uh, yeah. So maybe, yeah.
1: Ooh, a little teaser there. I like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that's just when I first started reading about this. I was like, oh, they have like algae on the outside of their tentacles or on their yeah on their tissue. Oh, but no, Chris. That's one of these reasons where corals are amazing and wacky and alien, in my opinion, is the algae is actually in the tissue, in the tissue of the coral, which I guess that probably helps for these metabolic exchanges that they do to help each other get the nutrients that they need from one another. And from the algae's point of view, I guess it makes sense that they have this amazingly safe place to live, typically speaking, inside the coral's tissues. But for me, that's the first time I've heard of a animal-plant relationship like that. And I'm sure there's many more mm-hmm. out there. So if you guys know them, email us because I just love animal physiology. And I had to dork out about, well, if algae is in their coral's tissue... Are they born with it in there? What do you think, Chris? Like, how no. does how does the algae get inside <laughs> their tissue?
0: Um, do they ingest it? Do they? Is it uh, you know as they grow? You know, as little planaria, right? They're little planaria, and then they they come and and land and and. Or does it spread like a virus? Like, I don't <laughs> right. know. You tell Chris, me.
1: I mean, like I said, this is why this podcast is so fun, because one question leads to another. But in general, there's okay. several different mechanisms about how they acquire the okay. algae. So it depends on if they are reproducing asexually or sexually. And we'll talk a lot about that in reproduction. But mm-hmm. okay. in the case if it's asexually, then basically they're just then basically the donor tissue already has it in there. So it's automatically relocated to the next colony mm-hmm. however when they're reproduced sexually and they're like those cute little floating planulars planules looking for a place to land researchers that don't think that they have any algae at that point in time and that they can acquire in two different ways and so you were right you're a good you always have good hypothesis that one way is that they can actually ingest it
0: that's right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and then when they ingest it, I guess somehow then it transfers to their tissue, which still blows my mind, and the, I I don't understand that. And the other way is through indirect horizontal transfer, basically from the outside, from the water. If there's these little algae floating around, they can osmosis is not the right word, but basically diffuse into the tissues. Which that's crazy, right?
0: And that's, then yeah, that's nuts.
1: Yeah, and then lastly, they think that some corals might start to obtain the zooxanthellae algae by ingesting fecal matter from fish that eat coral.
0: Okay. It's all right.
1: So, so many different ways. Yeah. But
0: it's just stuff like
1: that 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 I don't, I mean, I guess I'm a dork. (laughs) But I was like, wow, that's just, I mean, it's just incredible. And for me, it's nothing, something very unique.
0: I mean, it is unique. And, you know, just looking at, and looking at how the algae actually supports the corals. And it's just this symbiotic relationship. It's it's amazing. Well, that's amazing.
1: Right. Well, that's why when the water temperature rises and the corals are stressed. They eject the algae and because they're not, and they turn white because the algae helps with their pigmentation, they can't survive because they're not able to get all the nutrients that they normally would be receiving from this symbiotic relationship.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, now the coral, individual corals themselves, they can't, hunt, you yes. know, with their polyps, tentacles, mm-hmm. right? In the individual polyp, they extend these nitocytes. Is that how you'd say it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- which is almost like, you know, again, the which, you know, they use to, it's almost like jellyfish with the, the tentacles, the stinging, pierce poison, hold on to the prey and then eat that, eat them. So, you know, they eat things like plankton fish larvae, little things like that. And in the tropics, those aren't hugely plentiful in the water. They're there, and they do eat that. But again, because it's not so plentiful in other parts of the ocean, the cooler parts of the ocean, they really need that algae to survive. You know, it's really critical. It's really critical. Now, Angie, okay, so the planula becomes an adult coral i mean behavior of a coral i don't know behavior repro go like how do you describe different behaviors because they're not really you know like a mammal or other type of animal
1: well yeah chris once they settle into a polyp on a colony they're not moving around they're considered they're considered sessile animals But i don't know chris after watching these videos i think they i mean they're they have behaviors especially especially when they're hunting or reproducing so i mean they do move and as you mentioned they have those muscle contractions and they can really come alive and and you and i always joke that horses are really boring to watch cuz they just eat grass but then when they do yes. something social or reproductive or one of these behaviors it's really fun right and mm-hmm. on a smaller scale i think it's similar with corals that they aren't necessarily going to wow you on your ethogram with all these active behaviors, but they're an animal and they're alive and they live in these amazing colonies and they do cool things, right? They do hunt mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. they do lay down calcium carbonate to help themselves grow. And in some ways, Chris, they have a really amazing social behavior. Not how you and I think about it, about horses mutually grooming or monkeys playing, things like that. But the individual polyps and colonies, for that matter, do communicate with one another in ways that researchers are still kind of scratching their heads at. And we'll talk a lot about that in reproduction, but they have, the coral reef communities do communicate with one another. And in a lot of ways, researchers are still exploring how that is and scratching their head about how they communicate. But one way that is known is that these coral colonies share tissue and nutrients. So the end of it, and this is, this was, this is extra wacky. And once again, one of these more alien like uh, physiology things that blew my mind where the individual polyp, of course, sticks out and you can see its tentacles and it sits in this cup-shaped depression where it's laying down a calcium carbonate skeleton. But there's also this shared tissue called a sinosarc. I'm probably pronouncing that long. And -hmm, it's mm -hmm. living tissue that overlays the stony skeletal material of the coral. And this cinozark contains a stomach-like canal system that links the polyps together to allow them to share nutrients from the symbiotic zooxanthellae or the algae.
0: Wow. wow. So
1: the way that Dan describes it, my man Dan, in the interview, in my interview with CRF, is that it's almost like an apartment building where there's individual tenants, but they all pay communal rent. So, and he described it much better than that. So check out that interview that's going to be released in a couple of days, but it's really, really fascinating. So that they have over time, this tissue, it's just super fascinating that they act as a super organism, even I mean they may have their individuality, but then they also together act as a super or- organism to help the colony survive. So it's just, once again, out of this world, Chris. It's just crazy.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. It's just some cool stuff. It's just, oh, they're amazing. Now, the repro part, okay. Are you that ready to rock and roll, Chris? Bizarre. Tell me you're ready to rock it's and roll. Biz- it's, yeah, we're ready to rock and roll. It's bizarre. It's so different. It's Dude,
1: there's so much we can learn from it. Because, I mean, we're these mammal and, physiologists that think so... Right, right. Inside the box and linearly,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. is that yeah, yeah, like, yeah, okay,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just the one way, like the egg and the sperm, and blah blah blah. And, and yes, that is the way that the corals reproduce. So, the first question I asked as I started to kind of understand these colonies and just how dynamic they are the individual polyp within the colony, which are all genetically identical. We'll talk about that here as we move uh, forward into reproduction. So my first question, because I'm a simpleton, I suppose, is are corals boys or girls, right? What do you think?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I believe so, yes. It's mo- identified as a male or identified as a female. I, you know, cer- cer- Certain organisms, I mean, most organisms on life are female or male, even though there's some asexual reproduction.
1: Yeah, Chris, exactly. So about three quarters of all stone corals are hermaphrodite which means they have male polyps and female polyps in the apartment building of the colony, if you will. The other 25% of corals, basically a colony will either be just male or just female. So a, to- a totally different approach. And we'll talk about that too when we get to reproduction. And when focusing on staghorn and elkhorn horn coral, they are hermaphrodite, which means that they can produce both eggs and sperm. They have males and females inside the colony. So that kind of answered my first question. The second thing that I found really striking from a mammal biologist is that corals reproduce in many, many ways. So they can reproduce both asexually and sexually. And that's just not something we tend to see in the mammal kingdom, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So... With asexual reproduction, a single polyp can asexually reproduce itself in a couple different ways. Number one is called budding. And budding, I just think, is almost like it's a little small bulb-like projection comes out of tissue and basically has all the DNA and is a a genetic clone to the parent organism and it just pops off. The other way that an individual coral can asexually reproduce is through dividing or division. And researchers think that one of the benefits of being able to asexually reproduce yourself is you have a high reproductive rate, it helps you not get old, and it can increase your geographic distribution. So that's for an individual. Now, a colony can also, as a group, asexually reproduce. And we talk a little bit more about this in the interview with Dan because they capitalize on staghorn and elkhorn asexual reproduction to help grow corals. Mm -hmm. And so these Mm -hmm. mechanisms for colony asexual reproduction are fission, bailout, and fragmentation. Okay. And fragmentation is the one I talk about with Dan in my interview. And so in fission... This is where colonies will split into two or more during early developmental stages, so when they're really young. Bailout was one I had never heard of, so I did a little research on it. But that's a single polyp leaves a colony. It's like, peace out. I'm out of here. And it goes and creates a new one somewhere else. Finds a new substrate, attaches to it, and bada bing, bada boom, starts a new colony. And then fragmentation is where a colony is broken off. And this happens a lot during storms or disruptions. Or like you said, maybe if you accidentally hit a coral while you're surfing or snorkeling, mm-hmm. a chunk of it will come off or a branch. And then that will float around land somewhere and start a new colony.
0: All right, Angie. So asexual reproduction, you're telling me that's how they reproduce. Now, what is this? Cause I go back when Dr. Rob Hills and Roth from the AAZV, when I interviewed him 80 pods ago, and he said, what species of animal only reproduces once a year during a full moon in August when the earth's tilted 35 degrees upside down? Like, it was crazy, and I was like... I don't know. <laughs> like the possum. I just I didn't know.
1: Well, She's I like, no, I love coral. that story cuz well you actually got something wrong,
0: uh, which is pretty rare
1: cuz you're so br- cuz you're so brilliant. Uh <laughs> yeah. but I also love I think you asked me later on and I got it right. So that, You did. You did get it right. So Many many yes. pods and moons ago before I even really studied yeah. corals hardcore, but but yeah, Chris, you're yeah. talking about coral sexual reproduction. So they do Yes. It, they have the asexual which is really important part of their reproductive life but they have the asexual reproduction which is really important to help them build their colonies and grow but the sexual reproduction is really critical for them to move their genetic um, for corals to introduce new genetics and enhance their overall susceptibility to disease and global climate change and other things so And so yes, adult corals, the individual polyps and colonies partake in sexual reproduction and it's quite magical. It's spectacular. It's been called an underwater blizzard with billions of colorful flakes and circles cascading into the twilight. I mean, it's just, it's a sight to be seen. And what that is are corals spawning. So the polyps of the same species release gametes egg, sperm, or both simultaneously overnight, typically around a full moon in the summer or fall, depending on the species. And Chris, I spent a lot of time watching videos of different species of corals spawning. And it is very magical when we talk about behavior, like, oh, maybe they're boring because they're just sessile and they sit there. Oh, no once a year, mm-hmm. <laughs> they they it gets real magical and really crazy and super cool. And so there's a couple different ways that corals spawn. The first way and the more common way, especially for the stony corals like the staghorn and the elkhorn, is to broadcast. They're called broadcasters. and And what they do is they release, remember there's male and females on the colony. So they'll each release their gamete. Females release an egg, males release their sperm into the water overhead. And so then the gametes will hopefully find each other, fertilize, and form a microscopic larvae or embryo called a planula. And then the planula will float around the ocean from anywhere from two days to two months, depending on the species, and hopefully start to form a new colony. And the second type of sexual reproduction are For corals that are known as brooders, and these are not reef building species. Uh, so we're not really focusing on this podcast. I just find it amazing that there's all these different ways.
0: And so, Angie, you're saying all this okay, and it, it, it's awesome, but what, how do they synchronize this? How do they release it all at once? How do they know when to do all this?
1: It's nuts, because you know, That's what got yeah, me stuck. yeah, yeah uh, it's. Cr- yeah. I, There's a lot that researchers don't know about there must be some pheromones or chemical communication going on to tell similar species, hey, today's the day. But what researchers do know is that for stony corals, this synchronized release is due to environmental cues. So the phase of the moon, the sea temperature, the length of the day, the tilt of the earth, as you mentioned. Uh, And so... And for staghorn and elkhorn, it's usually after the full moon in late summer. So it's not a specific day. You know, it's not the same day every year. right they right? right, they're they're, right, they're picking right, up right, on right. all these environmental cues where, for instance, in the Great Barrier Reef, a lot of the synchronous spawners there will spawn the third through the sixth nights after a full moon. I mean, doesn't just sound like like witchcraft yeah, or something, crazy. you know? It's just—I
0: know, I know—it's
1: crazy. And so yeah. I just—and uh, how they all do it, and how they all know. Uh, once again, there's many mysteries that that researchers will hopefully someday solve that will help us. That will not only help us understand corals more, but can also help us protect them. Right?
0: No, it's just a. a, a- An incredible organism that, you know, so different from a lot of, you know, what, a hundred and something species we've covered. I know.
1: We'll we'll put some, we'll put some, yeah, we'll put some spawning videos on our show notes because it really is this beautiful blizzard of just a miracle, right? The, you know, the fertilization. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we jump to organization, really quick conservation tip this week. You know, obviously global climate change is the driver. Uh, You know, I'm going to put the carbon footprint calculator on there. I I really suggest people go on there and see where they are. We all need to reduce our carbon footprint. That will overall have a benefit effect. But how you can directly just today make a difference is sunscreen. You know, depending on where you live on Earth or when you go on vacation – there are some sunscreens out there that are detrimental to, to coral reefs, specifically the ones they're targeting are, there two, two chemicals, oxybenzone and oxinate, that are in sunscreens that do damage coral reefs and coral ecosystems. So Hawaii in 2018 banned those sunscreens. Other states are following, parts of Florida are following. I think the companies are getting away from these chemicals now. Because, you know, people vote with their dollar. So when you do look for a sunscreen, look for one that is quote unquote reef safe. And it should be labeled as such. Now, I know there's other chemicals that may be harmful. They're looking into that. But this is the best we have right now. And you can avoid those sunscreens. And that will that will benefit coral reefs. and something you can directly do. So let me guess your organization. Could it be somebody that... Dan is associated with?
1: <laughs> yes, Chris. Uh, I want to give a huge shout out to the Coral Restoration Foundation. They can be found at www.coralrestoration.org. They're also found on Facebook. And then, yes, I talked to my buddy Dan. And in the interview, I get to talk to Dan about how he became a coral ecologist and all about the Coral Restoration Foundation's mission because they're an awesome nonprofit And their goal is to conserve the ocean, and they're working towards restoring reefs, educating others, and using science so we can learn more about these threatened and endangered species of coral. Because in the United States alone, there are at least 22 coral species that are listed as threatened under the uh, Endangered Species Act, and three are endangered. So Core Restoration Foundation is working to save some critical species, uh, not only in Florida, but also internationally. So please, please, please listen to the interview. It's incredible. Share it with friends. Um, Check out this organization. Donate to them if you can, or at least like them on Facebook or other social media platforms. And then uh, a huge shout-out also goes to the Georgia Aquarium and the Florida Aquarium. As both of those aquariums, plus several others are working really hard and donating a lot of time and money and staffing to help restore coral reefs, uh, not only in the southeast United States, but also globally. So uh, it's another way that zoos and aquaria contribute oodles and oodles of time, information, and money to saving species, not only the big rhinos and elephants that we love, but also these incredible corals. So when things do open back up, make sure and go support your local AZA accredited aquarium.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, just a special episode. We've been saving this one for a long time. And, you know, with Plastic Free July focusing on the oceans this month, it was just, you know, I'm so glad we finally got to them. And there's so much more to learn about them, you know. I mean, so much.
1: Yeah, Chris, and a huge shout out and a thank you to everyone that was a conservation hero with me this past month of July and helped All Creatures Podcast not only participate in Plastic Free July, but dominate the rankings. We were in the top 20 out of like over 300 institutions. We were ranked within like the top 20 or so out of like 300 organizations. And we're, I mean, there was only like thirty, thirty-two 32 of us participating. So yeah. yeah. So while individually it might feel overwhelming, some of this conservation stuff, together as a group, we can make a huge impact. And I'll be putting up those stats here on social media in the next week or so to come. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you didn't join us this past year, join us next year.
0: And then we'll definitely mention our team in next week's podcast, some of the, uh, the top people in there, like just, uh, kicking butt, even though you're leading, I tried to catch (laughs) you. I couldn't, there's no way. But, uh, anyways, great pod Ange. And, you know, we're going to finish up, uh, this plastic free July next month with one other special species from the ocean and from an interview from a conservation expert wildlife veterinarian that i talked to last week so i'm excited for that so stay tuned and we'll be back next week
1: thank you everyone make sure and save those corals
0: listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com